Well, it's a bit of a funny story, isn't it? And I have to say that statistics have a way of being like that, don't they? And this passage before us today from 2 Samuel is confusing because of that. Because it essentially involves statistics, doesn't it? Well, what we see in our passage today is David conducting a census of the fighting men of Israel and we're left with the question, why is this such a big issue in the eyes of God? Why does counting the men of Israel result in such a terrible and swift judgment and punishment on behalf of David's heavenly father? Well, we're going to be thinking about that today because it is confusing because to us, a census, well, they're pretty boring, aren't they? A census is very simply an information gathering exercise to assist governing authorities by giving them accurate information on the people in the population to better inform the policies of that government. It's pretty boring, isn't it? If I kept talking along those lines, you'd probably fall asleep. Though what we're going to see today is that that was actually not what was going on in this census of David. Instead, we'll see how this activity of counting the fighting men of Israel was a very bad idea on David's part. Though more importantly, what we're going to see today is that in the face of human sin, a little bit of God's character... And because of that, it's going to actually give us much to give him thanks for. Have the passage open in front of you and we're going to work through it together. Our passage begins and the first section we see is in verses 1 to 9 where we see that David did something against Israel. Where we see that once again, as we see all the way through the Old Testament... The actions of Israel, God's people, have brought God's anger upon them. And the result of this is that God's anointed, King David, is motivated against them. Now, it's kind of a confusing thing to unpack because the passage doesn't give us much detail about what happened and why David was incited against them. It is difficult to work out exactly what is going on, but the passage tells us very clearly that God's king was sent, set against the people and the result of this is that David decides that he will take a, a census of all the fighting men of Israel. He essentially undertakes a, pro, a project to see how big his army is, which is a pretty innocuous thing for a king of Israel to do. King Solomon also takes a census during his reign as king, one that we read has no ramifications for Israel like we read here. So taking a census of the fighting men is kind of a difficult thing for us to get our heads around. What we see in this instance in 2 Samuel 24 is that the motive behind the census was a huge factor in God's displeasure of it. If you're looking on, we're in verse 2. David wants a count of all the fighting men done, so who does he naturally enlist to do the work? Who does he get? Joab. He gets Joab to do the work. Who was, at this point in time, the commander of the army? 
And he gets all the other generals of the army together and he tells them to go through Israel and number the fighting men. But just as the census is confusing, did you notice what else is confusing here? It's Joab, isn't it? Because did you notice that Joab tries to resist David's request? And that's one of the surprises in this passage, is that for the first time in everything that we've read in 2 Samuel, Joab is right. For the first time in the story, Joab actually gives good and godly advice. This thing, the census that David is wanting to do, is not a good thing. And Joab indicates that no good will come from it. The first time we see Joab acting in such a way. Though did you notice as well in the story that unfortunately also for the first time in 2 Samuel, Joab doesn't get his way. And the census is carried out. Joab and the commanders go out into the land and they travel around counting all the men who could carry a sword. After almost 10 months, they come back and give their report to David. And the numbers are staggering, aren't they? In the northern part of the kingdom, there was 800,000 fighting men. And in the southern part of the kingdom, there were half a million fighting men. The army of Israel at the conclusion of the census stood at 1.3 million fighting men who could carry a sword. Quite an impressive military presence. Though we see here that God's anger burned against Israel. And if you read 2 Samuel, you would see that there are numerous reasons why that might be the case. There was the incident where the people had rejected God's anointed king to follow who? Absalom. There was another incident where some of Israel had departed from David, we saw that last week, to follow a worthless man called Sheba. There's good reason, which we will get to in a minute, to say that these probably weren't the reasons, though, that God was angry with them. But we can say with a high degree of certainty that Israel had done quite a fair bit in their history to make God angry, hadn't they? And that is the case here. Because on numerous occasions they had rejected the king or leader that he had for them. But one of the difficult things from this passage is that God's anger is actually a complete mystery to us. Why is God angry at his people? Well, unfortunately for that question... The passage is completely silent, completely silent. However, it does give us a snapshot into an attribute of God's character, and that is that he is just. We're not told why God is angry towards Israel, though if we know the history of the Old Testament, we will have some ideas as to why he might be angry with them. But the thing we need to understand in this story is that even though we don't understand the mystery of God's justice, all we need to know is that he is just. And this is good news because it means that for all the horrible events in this world that have gone on through history, they have not gone unnoticed by the God who is just. He will one day bring justice. But there's a flip side, isn't there? Because the sobering message for you and I 
is that just as those big awful things do not go unseen by God, all of us have things for which God has seen, for which we deserve God's justice. Just like actions out in the world, our actions do not go unnoticed by him either. Which is why confessing your sin and receiving forgiveness is such an important thing to do, isn't it? Because he offers the opportunity for the slate to be wiped clean if we just say sorry and ask for it. But the people and the king of Israel in this story, in verses 1 to 9, had angered God. And so out of his justice, justice needed to be, gone, to, to be done. And so we move on to verses 10 to 17, where we see God's judgment on Israel for the actions of their king. Where we hear that upon hearing the result of the census, David, just like he did in chapter 12, he comes to his senses, doesn't he? As he understands just what he has done. And David is horrified at what he has done in collecting the census. But why? One of the difficult things about this chapter is that it's hard to definitively place this story in the wider narrative of David's kingship. Chapters 1 to 20 of 2 Samuel follow the story of David's life and they follow it very closely. And then in chapters 21 to 24, 2 Samuel finishes with a few snapshots of episodes in David's kingdom that happened during the stories of chapter 1 to 20. You see what's happening? You kind of get a history of David's kingdom in 1 Chronicles as well, as it kind of documents things from kind of the helicopter perspective. 2 Samuel gives us the what is happening in David's family perspective. And then chapters 21 to 24 give us kind of catch us up on things that happened earlier on in the story by way of finishing the book. Which means that we need to try and work out when all of this took place. As I mentioned just then, there's a parallel chapter in 1 Chronicles 21 of this event, if you read it, which describes the exact same events that we see here, but the surrounding events don't match up as we have them presented in 2 Samuel. But as far as we can tell, this scene in 2 Samuel 24 comes directly in the middle of two significant events in the history of Israel. And if you read through 1 Chronicles, before this event, you see David's campaign of waging war against the other nations. And after this event, preparations are made for the building of the temple. 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 13 tells us this. He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. It sounds like 2 Samuel chapter 10, doesn't it? Where we're given a similar summary that David could go out and make war against the nations. This verse in 1 Chronicles 18 explains that David, just like chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, essentially had the liberty to go to war with his enemies, with God assisting in helping him gain victory on every occasion. 
Which means that with this, we're not surprised when we read this in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, where we see that in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Joab led out the armed forces, he laid waste the land of the Ammonites and went to Rabbah and besieged it, but David remained in Jerusalem. Joab attacked Rabbah and left it in ruins. David took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was found to be a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labour with saws and with iron picks and axes. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Sound familiar? It's the beginning of 2 Samuel 11 and the end of 2 Samuel 12, isn't it? It looks like a lot uh, it looks a lot like this chapter we have in chapter 24 happened right after David and Bathsheba happened. That's what it looks like. Which means that we should not actually be surprised that David would have done something dumb to endanger his kingdom, should we? That was kind of what he was in the business of doing around that time. But without the certainty of knowing this to be true, let's think about what this means in the context of our message for today. The implication of where this story sits in 1 Chronicles is that means that when we come to look at 2 Samuel 24 and the event of the census, what's happened with his enemies? Well, they've been checked, haven't they? God has actually delivered him from his enemies, which means that there is no military foe at this point in the history of Israel, which means two things. Firstly, David is counting an army when there's no battles to fight. And secondly, and more importantly, he's making a claim on Israel. Because kings counted their armies to make themselves feel good. And so what we see is that David forgets all that God has done for him. He forgets the statement in 1 Chronicles 18 that God gave him the victory wherever he went. He forgets that he is God's anointed one, tasked with being the under-shepherd under God of his people, tasked with ruling God's people under God. He forgets that God gave him the victories, that God was in control and that he mattered. And instead, he makes a statement that he is the one who is actually in charge of Israel. David has forgotten his place as the shepherd of Israel under the better shepherd of God. And he picks that up in his confession, doesn't he? He says that they are like sheep and I, their shepherd, have done wrong by them. When David counts Israelites, he is usurping God's role as their true leader. And with the reported numbers of the fighting men coming in, David realises exactly what he has done. And he offers a full confession with the hope that all will be forgiven. However, as we've already seen, God is just, isn't he? And so with that being the case, something needs to be done about this sin to which David has committed on behalf of Israel. 
What started in our eyes as an innocuous census, a simple counting of the fighting men, has become something much, much worse, as David pretends to be the king over his people and not God, and that needs to be punished. And this is precisely what happens. The word of God comes to uh, the word of the Lord comes to Gad the prophet, and the message is one of punishment, just like the one that Nathan brought in chapter twelve. Though specifically, Gad brings three punishments, doesn't he? Just as David pretended he was in control, there's possibility that there is a high level of irony playing out here, is that as as God gives David the opportunity to pick the punishment that he wants. That's not how punishment works, is it? But that's the irony playing out here. David is faced with either three years of famine, three months of being hunted by your enemies, or three days of plague. Perhaps David saw the shortest option of the plague and ran with it, but that's not the response he gives. Because look at verse 14. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. It's a very significant statement from David at this point in his kingdom. Because even though he has committed this great sin before God, David is sure of one thing regarding God's character, isn't he? What is it from that verse? Just as God is just, God is a God of mercy, isn't he? And in this we see one of the great paradoxes of God's character. That being his need to see justice carried out while also being a God who David describes as being one whose mercy is great. But justice needs to be carried out for David's sin, and that is exactly what happens. The plague comes upon the people, and we're told that 70,000 of them die. God sends a great angel, and just at the point where Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, the Lord orders the angel to stop. God is just, but he is also a God of great mercy. Even in the face of punishment, David knew that God was merciful and in withholding the hand of the angel, God shows us that that David is right. But there is a problem. Because the sin has not fully been dealt with. It has not been fully atoned for and so David pleads with God. Though notice that he pleads not for the punishment to stop. That's significant. He doesn't ask for the punishment to stop. Instead, he asks that he and his family will be the ones punished for what he had done, not the people. Though what is significant here is where the angel stops once he is commanded by the Lord. At the, at the threshing floor of a man called Ariuna the Jebusite, I'll explain more in a little bit about that, but we get an answer to David's request in verse 18, where we see what David did to save Israel. The word given to Gad the prophet from the Lord instructs David to go to the threshing floor where the angels stopped and to build an altar. So David went up to see Ariuna, which was at one of the high points of the city of Jerusalem. David comes to the threshing floor 
And Ariuna comes out, bowed his face to the ground at, in the sight of the king and his men. And David declares that he's come to buy the threshing floor and explains what role it will have in appeasing the wrath of the Lord. And Ariuna offers it to him for free, doesn't he? Along with all the elements to make the sacrifice a possibility. Though David won't have any of it, will he? And he commences the sacrifice. Up until this point in the passage, we've seen God's wrath in full effect, haven't we? And we've seen that through his mercy, that wrath has been stayed, stopped for a period of time. Well, this act of atonement, we see, will satisfy the wrath brought on by David's sin. And what we see as verses 18 to 25 play out is God's anointed one, King David, we see him atoning for sin, don't we? Which deals with the wrath of God in a complete way, which ensures that the people are relieved from further punishment because of what David had done against them. The plague is stopped. It is stopped right there and right then. Do you see what has happened? David brought judgment on Israel for his actions. God's justice meant the punishment needed to be carried out. God's mercy meant that destruction had been temporarily averted. And then we see David saving Israel by atoning for his sin. Which is actually the most significant part of this story. And I think why 2 Samuel finishes with this story. Because we see what David actually was. Because in atoning for sin... In this story, we see David acting the most like Jesus that he would in his whole life. And it's why 2 Samuel finishes with this story, because the narrator wants us to remember God's promises that the saving king would come from David's family. And this is picked up at the end of the passage. As we see, the most significant moment in this final scene is where David declares... That a sacrifice that is not personally costly to him isn't going to be worth much in terms of being a sacrifice. And in that we see he's exactly like Jesus, isn't he? We see how David was a template, though very imperfect, of God's perfect anointed one. The one who would atone, not for his own sin, but for the sin of his people. That's why 2 Samuel finishes with this story, I think, because we need to be reminded of that. And as we conclude, we need to reflect on how David was the king who pointed to Jesus. Because the threshing floor of Ariuna, after this episode, went on to be the site on which King Solomon would build the temple of God. That's where it is. A place in which further sacrifices would be made over centuries to satisfy the just judgment and wrath of God. But the problem with that system was that the sacrifices offered were never good enough to last an eternity. They needed to keep being made over and over again. Sacrifices were constantly needed and in this we see that the events of this chapter show us so clearly that David was simply a shadow of the one who would come later. Today, through this final chapter of 2 Samuel, we've seen a demonstration of God's justice, haven't we? 
We've also seen that because of his mercy, his justice is able to be held off for a period of time. But with both of those things being true, it's even more amazing that God had a plan that would extend past the Old Testament sacrificial system and into eternity for you and for me. Because of his mercy, God acted in history by sending his son into the world to be the anointed one that David had failed to be. But more importantly, to be the atoning sacrifice to sin that no one else could possibly ever be. This is what we read in Romans 8, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's what Jesus is for us. Friends, today we've seen God's justice and mercy and in Christ Jesus we see both of those things come together as God through his mercy satisfies the requirement of his justice through the death of his own son. In verse 24, David said that atonement needed to come at personal cost for it to be worthy. Well, there's no greater cost than the Lord Jesus who stepped out of heaven to give up his rights and status as a son and prince of eternity by coming to earth to be the great and complete atoning sacrifice for sin so that all who believe in him can experience the hope and joy of eternal life. I don't know about you, but I need to, I need to be reminded of this all the time because it is so easy to be just like David and pretend to be the king. But Jesus is the king and we need to trust in him if we're going to be saved when he returns. Because the very simple reality is today we've seen the outworking of God's character in the light of David's sin and we've seen what his character is like in light of our sin as well. We've seen his justice and his mercy as well. His justice needing to deal with that sin and his mercy in the sending of his perfect anointed one to deal with our sin. Who came to be the atoning one for us so that we don't have to fear anymore but we can hope for the future. Friends, David's kingdom has been messy, hasn't it? Very messy. But in this final story of 2 Samuel we're reminded that he was in fact even though he was imperfect, a shadow of the son who would come, Jesus Christ, who came to die for us. And I think that we have much to be thankful out of this truth, don't we? That against God's justice and our sin, he had a plan to bring us back to him. So how about we pray about that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of David your servant. Father, we thank you that in his moments of sin and realising his sin, he came to you for what he needed most, which was your forgiveness. Father, help us not to 
remember or reflect or read the stories of David as being isolated incidences in the history of the world because we need to be honest with ourselves because we are much like him. Just as he needed your forgiveness and mercy in the face of your justice, so do we. Father, in light of this, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he came. We thank you that he lived the perfect life. We thank you that he suffered. We thank you that he died for us. And we thank you that he rose again to life, offering us forgiveness and hope for the future with you and him in heaven. Father, please remind us of these things every day. Please keep us from trying to take the wheel of the car of our own life. Help us to stop trying to be the kings of our own destiny. Instead, to trust in you and your goodness and your justice and your mercy and your love. Amen.